Welcome everyone to Just Crypto. My name is Vanessa. We've got another fantastic show for you today. Today's show is all about money and in particular, unfuckable money. Uh, we're going to learn a bit about what is money, uh, why is sound money important, why is private money important, and we'll explore some of the tools um, uh, that can help us enable this kind of money in our lives. Uh, very, very blessed today to have a Stoic.XMR, also known as Michael Fitzgerald, who is uh, the wonderful host of the YouTube channel Monero Magazine, uh, and also the author of his latest book, The Monero Standard. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Vanessa. Yeah, no, it's great to have you here. You know, one thing we, we, we love to do on the show is to interact with folks who are joining live. So if you are joining live, either on X or on YouTube, uh, just drop a hi in chat or reply to the, the video that's on X. Uh, love to know who's here, who's following along. Uh, we will be taking questions as we go through the show. So if you do have any, have any questions, uh, whether it's about, you know, anything we talk about today, Monero in general, uh, you know, the nature of money, all of those things are fair game for this particular show. So, you know, definitely, uh, you know, feel free to, to get all your questions answered. Uh, but why don't we start, uh, you know, Michael, with uh, a little bit about your story. Um, so you've been in the crypto space for a little while. And, you know, tell us how you got here and where your main focus has been. Yeah, that's uh, probably the question I'm probably least equipped to answer, funnily enough, because I hate talking <laughs> about myself, so to say. Um, but I started my sort of uh, what we call crypto Bitcoin journey back in 2015, late 2015, early 2016, something like that. Um, and it was when a friend introduced me to Bitcoin um, for reasons that's probably best not described um, on a on a recorded open sort of chat. Um, but yeah, so it was like, like sort of anything, right? So if you discover something tomorrow, you're probably not going to drop your entire life and just drop everything into it. You're not going to quit your job and everything. And that was obviously very much the case for me. So you learn about something and life goes on, right? It's a cool tool, whatever gets the job yeah. done. And so life went on. Um, I was working uh, and studying at the time. So it wasn't until later on in 2018 when I started working at a Bitcoin mining company. Um, and so that was kind of what really started uh, a deeper understanding of like in terms of I can't say I understood day one the whole purpose of like a decentralized money and all that kind of stuff but that was certainly where the journey was more seriously started yeah. so that was my first paycheck there was around about the 21st of December 2018 which for those who were around at the time would remember that was possibly to the to the microsecond that I got paid was the bottom of the 2008 uh, sorry 2018 bear market after the 2017 uh, bull market um, so yeah, life went on. I was working there for a few years, probably about two and a half years in the end. Um, then I've worked at uh, other various crypto projects. I'm currently working for a Bitcoin YouTuber. Um, and so, I mean, my main sort of focus has been kind of that ethos that it started with, right? Was like a decentralized money to give freedoms back to the individual, so to say. So Bitcoin back in the day, right? It was like really something special. It was, most people didn't even know about it. Not that that's why it's special, but most people didn't know about it. It was this thing that really gave, uh, it sort of really turned the tide, not so much against the government, but certainly gave people a lot more freedoms than they had previously in terms of being able to spend the money how they wanted and ultimately give them freedoms that they wanted because money is freedom, money is expression, right? So it was not until probably like the last few years. So obviously, you know, back back then when I got into uh, Bitcoin and crypto, 
Monero was still around and I remember seeing it on the price charts and that was pretty much to the extent of my knowledge. But it's really only over the last few years, I knew, obviously knew it was a privacy coin, whatever, but it was probably only, only over the last, say, four years or so that I really started to discover Monero. So the first time I sent a Monero transaction, um, you know, for example, when you send a, a Bitcoin transaction or you're doing like a Uniswap trade, you're seeing, go on the blockchain and see like the status of your transaction. And so I did the same for Monero because it wasn't turning up, you know, with confirmation, confirmations. Um, and so I go on the blockchain, obviously nothing shows up, right? So that for me was one of the sort of two main light bulb moments that I had where I thought, because I come from that sort of, not so, I don't think like a fuck the government attitude is necessarily like best describing it, but a more of like a believer in self-sovereignty and things like that. Uh, more freedom. So like, leave me alone. Is it Very much. That's like exactly how I feel. Just leave me alone. Do whatever you want. Just leave me out of it. Yeah. Um, and so um, that was one of the main light bulb moments for me in terms of understanding like the power that Monero could give to somebody, that monetary autonomy that it gave back to people because we don't have that with the current monetary system, right? Um, and then it was probably a second... Uh, the second sort of light bulb moment was kind of where it really all clicked. So I had all my, you know, preconceived notions of where the world was, where it was going, et cetera. But it was a podcast, uh, and I know you've been on the podcast, Monero Talk. Um, the episode was with Mono Crypto. And the sort of the way he broke down the entire, call it the global power structure, the problems we're seeing in the world with CBDCs, social credit scores, um, the increasing global socialism in the West, the way he broke it down was like that second light bulb moment for me. So I already had that preconceived notion of, um, you know, that Monero experience was like, there's got to be more to this. And then I really saw where it fat, uh, fitted, whatever the word is, um, with that podcast. So that was really my journey into Monero. And that's kind of my focus now is actually more so, I, I, to be honest with you, I'm completely disinterested in everything to do with what most people find in crypto, which is speculation. So, you know, you see like this video of new coin, whatever it's going to do. I, I couldn't care less. You know <laughs> what I mean? I feel like the problem has been solved with Monero. Um, I feel like it's important to keep spreading that message. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's pretty much my journey into crypto, my focus. Awesome. So, so you talked about the problem being solved. Uh, can you articulate like what is the specific problem that we all need to have solved and, and why is Monero the solution for it? And yeah, so maybe that's a large question that dives into like what is money and everything, but you know, yeah. we get there if we need to. No, very much so. And there are kind of two main problems that I focus on, and this is a very simplified version of it. But there's the first problem, which is a lot what the Bitcoin standard focuses on, which is the so called fiat Ponzi, right? The kind of current monetary system that we have. And the second problem is, as we just spoke about, that sort of global socialist movement, the, the impending dystopianism, if you want to call it that. So for those who are familiar with um, the Bitcoin standard, for example, so, I mean, if you're familiar with the current monetary system, you'd know that obviously they debase the money, they have arbitrary control over the monetary supply, right? Um, and and I, I think, think actually an important thing to stop you here is like, it might be obvious to you and I, but for a lot of people, like when you say that, like obviously they do that, they're like, really? Like, you know, is that actually happening? That's right. It's and, become normalized, right? 
and, and so maybe you could go into a little bit more detail about like what are they actually doing to the money supply? You know, why was the Bitcoin standard so revolutionary when people started to, to realize what was going on? Yeah, so I mean, it's hard to go into a lot of detail without completely overloading people. Um, but to sum it up in short, they essentially arbitrarily expand the monetary supply, usually for their political purposes to fund X program or X war, for example, in order to essentially what is equivalent to buying votes. Um, and they you, they do that through debt, for example. So that's the easy way to explain it. So they're not literally just printing money. They're generally issuing debt. However, that debt is created out of thin air, which is a key concept of uh, Keynesian economics, which is the current economic system we have today, modern monetary theory, right? Um, so they've essentially expanded, and that, so the first step towards that was 1971. So that old saying, what the fuck happened in 1971, that old website, right? I'm sure a few of your viewers have seen it. And the answer to what they did in 1971 was they uh, depegged gold from the dollar, or they depegged the dollar from gold. So gold was essentially backed by nothing at that point in time. So, sorry, uh, the dollar was backed by nothing at that point in time, whereas it's previously redeemable for gold. Um, so the monetary supply back in 1971, according to the chart I have here, which is by the Fed, uh, was under, I don't have the exact number because it's obviously it's expanded a lot. Um, so that's a good example what 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 the WTF happened in 1971. So it's under a billion dollars back in 1971. And the current M2 monetary supply is, uh, well, I have an old chart here from about 2022, and that's around $22 trillion. Um, so they've massively expanded the monetary supply. Um, and what that's ultimately led to is, there we go, the M2. So what that's ultimately led to is a massive uh, devaluation of the dollar, right? So I think, while we're sort of on the subject, a very important concept of that is something that um, is called, I mean, obviously the base protocol, uh, sorry, the consensus mechanism for Monero and Bitcoin is called proof of work. But proof of work is actually an incredibly important concept that I think most people don't even understand. They probably never thought about. I learned about it. Um, I sort of learned about the... Um, the real uh, importance of it from a fellow Australian called Alex Fetsky, which who you may or may not know. Um, so when you actually think about it, money, well, the value of everything, right, is derived from how hard it is to create or obtain more of it. And that's why diamonds are relatively valuable. You can argue nuance about the manipulation diamond market, but that's, for example, that's why gold is more valuable than silver, because silver is a lot easier to obtain than gold. And the same is true with everything, right? Um, so when you have um, a money that's easy to create, you're obviously able to debase it relatively easily. Uh, and obviously with the current monetary system, you have just a centralized group in control of it. So me and you, we can't create more of it, right? We'll go to jail for that. But if uh, you know the politicians say it's Biden or say in Australia, whoever the prime minister here is, is here at the moment, um, they just create more I, of it. I do like that you know that, uh, you know, our president's name, but not your own prime minister's name. That's <laughs> well, it, it does Over here, it doesn't matter who we vote for. They just kick them out and give someone new anyway. So it doesn't even matter. Um, and that's very similar to America, right? Like where it's, they say it's uh, blue and red, but it's really all the same shit, right? Um, so proof of work, um, when you actually have proof of work back into a money, 
it actually um, so when you have to provide work in order to obtain money the limitation to its creation is very it's a lot more limited as opposed to the arbitrary expansion of the supply right um, and that's that's where everything gets its value from as i said um, by how hard it is to create more so with something like gold um, you have to obviously go out with a mine, you know, say a pickaxe, for example, and put in physical work that expands caloric energy, um, expands time in order to obtain more of it. Right? And they're limited resources by nature. You can't do that forever because if you don't eat, you'll die um, and you need to sleep too, right? So um, with the current system, they obviously don't need to do that. And with something like a proof of work based system, it puts that limitation to the creation of something which is ultimately the value of something mm. back into the money so that's problem number one is the fiat ponzi is the idea that effectively because you have to work to create the money that the money can be a store of value that stores that work so that when you spend it you're, you're basically yes. trading that work for someone else so it, correct it, inherently yes. almost the value transfers with it of that work. correct it, very much a storage of energy so i like a lot of uh for example safety and amos's um sort of analogies to a storage of energy which is obviously, like I said before, you have to expand your caloric energy and your time in order to obtain a resource, a limited resource, right? And so if you go out each day um, and you get uh, X amount of gold and you only need to use half of that in order to obtain, you know, a bed for the night and uh, you know, a fish for the day or whatever, right? That excess that you've had is the essentially half of the day you've spent. That's the energy stored in order to for another day, right? So you could not work tomorrow. Um, you could instead, you know, rent your room for tomorrow and you could buy a fish tomorrow instead of having to work because you've produced excess and you've had to commit that real world resources in order to obtain it. So when they debase the money, that's a very important point is when they debase the money is that energy that you've stored, they're essentially taking a slice of that away from you and giving it to themselves. Um, and that's why, for example, fiat, you can't realistically store a large amount of money in fiat um, because obviously the amount of energy, the the time you've spent essentially just becomes exponentially more worthless over time. How do they give it to themselves? Uh, you know, so I get we, we looked at this chart here, which is the, the, the M2 money supply. So they're increasing the money supply, but how do they ensure that they get a larger chunk? I think we refer to that as the Cantillon effect, right? Sure. Yeah. So um, an easy example is um, say... <laughs> I'm struggling to find exact numbers on the go here, but say for example, well, it's it's a, when you essentially have arbitrary control over the monetary supply. So say the monetary supply is um, ten trillion dollars for argument's sake. So and you own or the government owns zero percent of that, right? So everybody else owns ten trillion dollars. So that, let's just easy example: they double the monetary supply to twenty trillion dollars. Um, they didn't have to do anything and now they have $10 trillion. So they mm. actually have 50% of the monetary supply. So when all the money equals all the goods and services, um, then they've essentially just created half the goods and services for themselves. So that's just a very easy example of how, how they do that. Okay, so effectively it's the, the energy transfer that they force because they can print out of thin air this, this money. Correct, yeah. Um, and they can Correct. choose who gets it. Usually it's themselves and you know their, their friends and folks. Not usually, always. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be one situation where that's not true. Um, yeah, you, you'd, I'd like to think so anyway. Um, but the second problem, as we've spoken about before, 
that it solves. So the first problem was the Fiat Ponzi. Um, and the second problem on a sort of very high level without going into much detail is that, as we're speaking about that sort of globalism, technocracy, and all the sort of agendas that they want to implement. So I'm sure many people certainly four years down the track are familiar with that. You'll own nothing and be happy. I'm sure many people are familiar with the agenda 2030. Uh, I'm sure many people are sort of noticing, certainly you see it in our countries, you see it in America with the FedNow program, you see it in Australia with the CBDC, tri uh, the pilot program that they're doing. Um, and many countries around the world are running trials, if not implementing them directly. Um, I forget uh, the exact website. There is a website though that shows uh, which countries have CBDCs and which ones don't. Yeah, and if you if you haven't seen this smiling guy here who owns nothing and, and is happy, uh, this is all over. You know, it's the World Economic Forum. It's not a conspiracy theory. Like it's a yeah, propaganda right. pamphlet that they put out. Yeah. That we're referencing. It's not something that we've made up. It's not something that you know, you're right. into. <laughs> At, and when you explain that to people who are like not necessarily in the space, so to say, they actually think you're just making it up, right? But this is just taking them at their own word. This is just, uh, this is no speculation whatsoever. This is what they've openly talked about. This is like what, for example, Klaus Schwab's uh, spoken about it in his books. Um, things like CBDCs, digital IDs, social credit scores, things like owning nothing and being happy. So these are, when you actually think about, um, there, there's sort of two aspects I look at why privacy is important um, in solving the second problem. Um, and the first aspect is, um, for example, directly this actual globalist agenda. So in a world where there's CBDCs and digital IDs, such as credit scores, um, all this kind of stuff. So first of all, they're gonna limit how you spend your money with, um, with your CBDCs. Um, then with, for example, with social credit scores, they're gonna rate you on how you spend your money. So you don't, again, have that freedom of expression and freedom of expression is freedom at the end of the day. So, um, so it solves it directly by that. So if you have a money that actually provides you privacy, it gives you those freedoms back. So in a world, again, they've spoken about banning meat, for example, or having a carbon credit allowance for meat and for flights. So in a world, for example, if you, uh, I know Bitcoiners are very like um, serious about beef for example bitcoin and beef is a big sort of culture within the community um so obviously a lot of those bitcoin maximalists are going to hit their carbon allowance very quickly right so in a world where they can uh, essentially limit what you do with your cbdc's having that privacy of monero allows you to get that freedom back directly without exposing yourself to using bitcoin for example and they know through kyc who your address is and also who you're sending it to um so they can obviously very easily come and kick your door down right and there's a lot of sort of that, that's ahead. something that people don't kind of fully understand because they look at Bitcoin and they say, uh, Bitcoin is uncensorable, it's on-chain, no one can stop me from sending you money. And and that's true. Um, but the problem is the repercussions that happen afterwards. Like you said, someone comes and kicks down your door because it's fully transparent. So the $5 wrench attack, right? It's like the weakest, uh, the weakest link in the chain. Um, so there's sort of that is protecting yourself directly from those uh, globalist uh, global socialist agendas. Um, and then there's sort of the second way, which is directly related to the first problem of the Fiat Ponzi, is so when you have like an entire global power structure, all the way from, you know, the BIS to, uh, or the, the BS, if you want to call them that, to global think tanks, to organizations like the UN, exactly. You had this amazing diagram, and I couldn't find it on the web, so I just took a photo from your book. Um... I, I made this, that's why. <laughs> 
<laughs> and this is awesome. So maybe if you could kind of walk us through this, because I haven't seen, you know, the power structure structured quite this way, especially as you look at like governments being lower on the hierarchy of power. And I always, uh, you know, thought the U.S. government is the most powerful government in the world. Right. We can do whatever we want. But according to yep. the diagram you have here, like maybe not so much. So what's going on there? Yeah, so it's kind of to break it down on a simple level, you have, for example, the, the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, is what's called the central bank of central banks. And it's made up of, I think, around 64 member central banks, um, which are, you know, people like Jerome Powell or the Federal Reserve in general, people like the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, blah, 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 right? Um, and they come together and they essentially set the monetary policy for the world. And that's why, for example, you might see interest rates. Um, again, if, if me and you, we, for example, we agree on a lot, but we'll never agree on everything, let alone have me, you, and you know, 62 other people from 62 other countries agree on everything, right? But it's no surprise that you see like the unison, the, the acting in unison of, uh, you know, raising of interest rates and lowering of interest rates and the expansion and you know, monetary supply and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so they're setting the monetary policy for the world, the BIS and all the central member central banks in general. And for folks who maybe aren't familiar, what is monetary policy? Uh, so it's very much as it's described. So the policy relating to the money, right? So whether they're going to, um, well, it's very much, I, I don't know if there's a better way to describe it, but it's basically just the policy for how they're going to manage money or how they're going to use money within society. Okay. So how much they're going to print or how much they're going to, yeah. you know, manipulate certain things. Um, very much so where it goes to, et cetera. Now, one thing, you know, as I was reading through and perhaps people would have the question of like, well, okay. This is fine. There's coordination happening, but as a global community, don't we want that coordination? Like, isn't it good to cooperate across countries to achieve some goal that's hopefully beneficial for everyone? What's bad about that? Well, this is a good question because I've been thinking lately about. I was like, am I am I wrong? Have I got this all wrong? You know, like, am I am I the crazy one here? Um, and really, it comes down to your values, right? So, if you believe that. Um, an individual should be able to pursue the means that they think is best for their life. And that could be something like going to work and earning more money, or it could be kind of the opposite is not going to work and spending more time with the family. Both, there's no right answers. It's whatever the individual wants to do, right? So when you come together and set policies for the entire world, you're limiting the amount of freedom that somebody can have mm -hmm. in order to pursue their goals for themselves. So if you think that you're right and everybody else is wrong, then you'll probably think um, that, you know, socialism is a good idea. But if you um, sort of get to that level of knowledge where you admit that you know nothing, like the more you learn, the more you know nothing, right? Then you can sort of say, okay, well, life is really this completely made up construct that we don't know why we exist and all these kinds of philosophical questions. Who am I to be enforcing my potentially delusional ideas upon somebody else, whereas it works for me and that's great, it works for me. Um, so um, so again, if, if you think, it, it really comes down to a difference of opinion at the end of the day. So if you want to enforce your opinion on everybody else, then you probably think socialism is a good idea, but, uh, and then you should obviously work together as a, a you know, organized global movement or whatever you want to describe it. Or if you just, you know, accept that everybody's different um, everybody has different goals in life, none of them are right or wrong, then you'll probably think that that's probably not the best idea to be enforcing your opinions on other people.
Yeah, and generally, I've, I've seen people, uh, when the party or the group in power is doing things that they like, they're very happy with the very approach awesome. of it being forced on everyone. And when they're doing things they don't like, uh, then yeah. the pain starts to set in. And, and so I think that uh, you and I probably share the value of having more freedom because, you know, we're all different. Correct. Um, I want to give yeah. a shout out quickly to a couple of folks who popped into chat. Uh, Foxfire420, welcome. Good evening. Uh, we've got Maestro Niani, if I pronounced that correctly. Uh, thank you for the kind words. Yeah, we're, we're definitely working and um, spreading the good word about Monero and Accelerate Profits. Uh, Taco Tuesday, yes. <laughs> Welcome. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, sorry, carry, carry on, Michael. I just wanted to say hi to the folks who are here. Uh, and if you are here following along, drop a hi. I'd love to you know, see who's following. No, awesome. So, that, that, so the monetary policies we're speaking about is pretty much set at that high level um, if you want to bring that uh, power pyramid back up. Um, then you have sort of these global think tanks like the World Economic Forum, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Chatham House. You have things like the Club of Rome, the Bilderberg Conference, all these kind of global think tanks where the so-called elite, I don't I don't think of them as elites, but other people sort of describe them as elites. I think of them as like leeches because they don't exist without that parasitic <laughs> lifestyle. Um, and they come together. So they essentially come up with these great ideas like how they're going to implement CBDCs um, and how to very much um, control many aspects of society um, today. So I'm trying to think of a few examples, but like some easy examples, as we spoke about CBDCs, digital ID, social credit scores. Well, I think a, a great example is maybe that the whole climate change narrative that's happening, um, which it seems like, uh, from what I'm understanding of the pyramid, like the Bank of International Settlements almost forces down certain things, whether it's monetary policy across countries that can be centrally forced. And then the layer below it, these think tanks, as you, you talk about, are creating narratives that then uh, influence the population to effectively go along with what the narrative is. The latest one being climate change. We can look back a few years and, and you know, we talk about pandemics and things like that. Very much so. And I think an important aspect that most people don't actually necessarily think about too hard is legal frameworks, right? So a lot of these uh, organizations come up with legal frameworks. So it makes it very easy for governments to adopt policy. So there's obviously, um, so those who are familiar with the political process, um, I don't want to make assumptions, but politicians are generally, and this is a big generalization because it's certainly not true in regards to all areas. Everyone has their own specialities. But politicians, as everybody is, is you can't actually be, uh, you can't know everything, right? So, and there's only a limited amount of time in the day. So when you come up, like when these global think tanks come up with these uh, legal frameworks, they're essentially having like a, a GitHub for, um, for, for laws, right? So developers go to GitHub, find examples of current implementations or something, essentially copy and paste it or, you know, modify it slightly to their current situation, blah, 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 and implement it for themselves. So when you already have that sort of so-called copy and paste ability to adopt it into your own country, it makes adopting it a lot easier. And when you have that sort of, um, you know, ability to, uh, as you said, form narratives, it obviously makes adopting it a lot more politically palatable, right? Um, so moving down, so you have these guys who are creating uh, the policies essentially for the world in a generalized way. Um, then you have these things. Actually, before we, we, we jump one layer, one thing I'm curious about at this this think tank layer is aren't there dueling think tanks? Uh, isn't there a, a world effectively where um, it's not just one narrative that everyone's pushing, that there are different people with different perspectives at this higher level who are fighting it out? I mean, I'm sure, you know, Shell and ExxonMobil have a different perspective on climate change than maybe, you know, some other folks. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but in terms of like the global think tanks, like I don't personally know of any global think tanks that'll say like funded by Shell or ExxonMobil and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if you do. I, I Not off the top of my head, no. Yeah, not off the top of my head. They may or may not be, but I don't really know of any. Um, but certainly the big ones, the powerful ones, the ones that are, you know, act in with some sort of meaning um, are these sort of leftists, um, let's sum it up as the World Economic Forum, right? Um, so again, these policies are then implemented by that lower layer, which is things like the IMF. Um, say, for example, like a global think tank might come up with some pandemic response policy, right? And then the World Health Organization um, will then adopt that. And then below that, you obviously have governments who are signatories to the World Health Organization then adopting that policy. I don't know about America, but in a, in a, with the last 12 months or so, Australia adopted one of the World Health Organization's pandemic response plans for the next pandemic, right? So the World Health Organization has control over Australia in that circumstance of the next you know, emergency pandemic, right? So in that sense, the pyramids are very much laid out. Um, yeah, the governments of the world, the houses of nobility, like the, I mean, the kings and queens, essentially. Um, and then below that, and the important distinction is, for example, they're all relatively separate in a way, um, but I think the most separate from all of that process is the businesses. So when I'm talking about like Google, Meta, Microsoft, uh, Procter & Gamble, BlackRock, all this kind of stuff, they're essentially just used um, to enforce that, right? So say, for example, we saw, uh, who was it? Nikki Haley talking about, you know, having um, essentially KYC social media, right? Where you have to verify your identity. Um, so in a world where you have to say, for example, verify your um, identity on social media, big businesses will be used to enforce that. So Twitter will just be a pawn in the game um, I'm sure Facebook, the uh, Meta, I suppose, will just be a pawn in the game and they'll be used to enforce that on the layer below, right? Um, and, and I think that's, you know, interesting in the context of, at least in the US and our constitution, where uh, I don't think the framers of our constitution imagined a world where corporations would be quite so powerful as a Google or a Meta or, or you know, have that level of control over our lives. So a lot of the restrictions that have been placed have actually been placed on the layer above that. Um, but it's interesting to me to see how they play out, even, you know, the Twitter files which came out and how people are still defending it as it's okay because the government didn't directly do it. Um, and so we haven't wrestled with this indirection and how that affects sort of the fundamental rights that we, at least here in the US, uh, should enjoy. Yeah, it goes into a real gray area there, for example, with the Twitter files, right? Um, it definitely goes into a real gray area. But that's... Um, that's a sort of big generalization of that so-called global power pyramid that I've created. Um, there are, for example, a lot of, I think it's actually very important to illustrate that there is a lot of interconnectivity within these levels, right? So it could be something like, um, so the head of BlackRock, Larry Fink, is also a member of the World Economic Forum. Uh, a lot of these people go to a lot of the leaders of global businesses and global governments go to things like the Bilderberg conference. Um, you have people going from governments into organizations like the United Nations as postings from their government. You have people from uh, businesses like banks going into the central banks of the current uh, of the country making foreign policy, sorry, making monetary policy. 
So there is an incredible amount of interconnectivity within these layers. So I, I'm not a subscriber that there's a big sort of global conspiracy where everyone's out to get us, so to say. Um, I'm more of a subscriber to the, as illustrated here in the power pyramid, that there is a lot of interconnectivity within the layers and the monetary policy at the top is set so that all their interests are aligned all the way down so that everyone on the layers below are enforcing what's meant to be the the incentive structure so to say would you see the lack of freedom as almost a a, a side effect uh, to what they're doing not not necessarily an, uh, an outcome that they're driving towards I, I don't think i have a very strong answer on this but i would think um it's probably both so it's probably is a side effect but it's also a sort of like yeah maybe maybe if you call that a side effect but it's a consequence of having socialist policies that are not respecting of freedom and not um not endorsing freedom so to say yeah and i think that's perhaps where you know the challenge that i find back to your uh, talking about values and what are the values that people have uh, because it's very easy for me to imagine someone who does think that socialism provides benefit because of that cooperation yeah. and, and therefore uh, their value, they believe, leads to a better world for everyone. Correct. Um, yes, correct. And, and, and that's something I sort of struggle with because we're, we're in our own little bubble here in, in the crypto world. So how do you communicate to folks who maybe have that impression or perhaps haven't thought too deeply about it, like the distinction between those two values and why you would prefer they chose one or the other as, I guess better for, for, for the society? That is a very good question. Um, I think the base principle for I go, any forward, any go forward is if someone doesn't want to change their minds, you can't change their minds. Um, and at the end of the day, if someone has a different value, it doesn't actually mean that it's wrong necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would just ask the question to uh, socialists is, what kind of world do you want to see? Do you want to see a world where people have more prosperity? So people have better, um, say like superficial things, outcomes, they're able to obtain whatever they want. They're able to spend more time with their family and loved ones and friends and all that kind of stuff. Or do you want to see a world, because that's what freedom leads to, right? That's what things like Austrian economics leads to. That's what general freedom leads to is better outcomes because people are able to direct their lives as they see fit. And even if you don't agree with that, at least they'll be happier, which will make for a much more peaceful and harmonious society, right? Which will be better for the other person, the, the so-called Okay. So, so potentially coming from the, the argument of like the, the purpose is to maximize the total happiness in society. And one way to do that is to ensure that individually people can achieve the most happiness that they would like for their lives, which is a better maximization function than sort of averaging it down to a lower level of contentness as it were that's that's a great way to put uh break it down i think whereas obviously socialism is a complete opposite of that um where you essentially control everything and you make everybody achieve the outcomes that you want to achieve right yeah so let's talk a bit about sound money um so we've talked a bit about all the shenanigans that's going on we've talked about the global power structure which i think is something that's important for people to understand uh what is sound money and um why is Monero, uh, better money than Bitcoin, better money than, than gold. Yeah, well, um, what is sound money has sort of a base question. The old, I laugh every time I say it, uh, but what is money, right? That sort of base question. You understand sound money, you need to understand what money is. 
Um, and I think in a way, the more you understand money, the more you realize that there is no definition for what money is actually. Um, but the way I sort of frame it up in the book is that we look uh, historically and we say, well, this is the history of money. We can see this has led to good outcomes for the people and this has led to bad outcomes for the people. And the current monetary system we have is indicative of those things that have led to bad outcomes for people. So money is maybe that I'm sure there's a lot of people who would sort of argue a lot of a lot a lot a lot of tiny nuanced points of this but the best way i sort of describe money is a storage of energy that you can use to consume things right so that you can spend essentially um something that you can save to then spend right so it has to have both characteristics so um why is it better than so a sound money would just be something that does those characteristics so it allows you to save and it allows you to spend and and i feel like as we talk about money we have to have this on the screen uh, it's very <laughs> yeah right the uh, the rice stones from from yap um so why is it better than bitcoin why is it better than gold um well i think firstly people uh, it's called Bitcoin maximalists and Monero guys. Actually, 99.9% uh, .9 similar, actually. I actually think they're, they're more than 99% similar. Uh, I just think kind of the, to generalize it, the toxic maximalism from Bi from Bitcoiners doesn't allow them to mm. potentially see the upsides of something else. It's either for Bitcoin maximalists, it becomes not freedom's the goal, Bitcoin's the goal, right? Which is kind of, antithetical from the idea of why you would adopt Bitcoin in the first place, which is more freedom. It's interesting because they probably got to Bitcoin through freedom um, and then that's right. That's right. To it that way. Um, I love this definition from Circurrent who's saying he refers to money as fungible power. Yep, very much so. And that's just one key characteristic of um, of a good money, right? Like um, I don't have it here, but I spoke about it in the book. There was six or seven characteristics of money. So fungibility being one of them. So um, why is it better than Bitcoin? Well, I would say it's only better than Bitcoin because, um, but again, I, I don't think it's so obvious to say it's better, it's worse. I think everything in life has trade-offs. So mm -hmm. there's not just one thing that's perfect and solves all the problems. Say, for example, Bitcoin has a limited supply, right? Uh, which is probably good for a better for a storage of energy uh, point of view, but then the other side of that being a blockchain is you don't have any tail emissions, so you don't have any chain security long-term, which is just a trade-off of having that so-called limited supply. Um, now, the main sort of point, the main point of distinction anyway, is that sort of privacy as we spoke about in order to protect yourself from those global socialist movements. But the point I didn't finish before was in order to protect yourself from the fight back of any potential, you know, fight, well, not potential, as every empire becomes closer to its demise, it becomes increasingly rationaling and increasingly strong-handed, right? Mm. So as we see the global, sorry, as we see the Fiat Ponzi become uh, closer to crashing, we can only expect a similar reaction where they're gonna become uh, from the, essentially the global power structure is held up by Fiat, right? So their power derives from their ability to control the money. So as that power slips away from them, they're going to fight back a lot harder against it, right? Yeah. So 
the lack of privacy on Bitcoin allows them to do a lot of those $5 wrench attacks, right? So they might say, you can own Bitcoin, right? And this is why I think the, the as some people do, the the ETFs for Bitcoin are probably not a good thing because they can say, you can own Bitcoin, you just have to own it through an ETF that we can take from you anytime and that you can't actually spend and you've essentially taken the two teeth from the tiger, right? Um, so in that fight back world where the global power structure is really cracking down on people who are using Bitcoin, essentially people who are, you know, domestic terrorists and all these kind of narratives that they're going to frame up, right? Um, Bitcoin doesn't really protect against that. And it's not just this power structure. It's anyone who wants to fuck with you whatsoever. And that could be a future power structure in 500 years from now. It could be anything. So at least with the privacy of Monero, it allows you to actually have that freedom. Forget all the other stuff like fungibility and all that kind of stuff. But the privacy actually allows you to have that freedom um, of your money back to you, right? It's kind of like using cash versus using, um, you know, bank transfer, right? Now, isn't, there, analogy, isn't there a scale here of the type of messing with you that you have to worry about? I mean, so at the level we're at right now, we know the government is, you know, printing money. Um, and as, you know, Obi points out here that Bitcoin has shown to be a fantastic store of value, right? It's something that that does keep the value, you know, at least price-wise, we can see currently better than, than Monero does. And if you're not afraid of the government knocking down your door, right? If you trust in the legal system and the, the structures of civilization, uh, one could say that Bitcoin could be sufficient in that context. Well, if you trust, the, okay. So if you're trusting a legal system, for example, you're you're forgetting that the people create the laws. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, they can change the laws to do whatever they want at any time. So you can trust in a legal system, but the legal system may not be designed to protect you. So if you trust in it, that's even worse, right? Because you think it's going to actually enforce the laws out to get you. Um, so is that perhaps uh, maybe a way of saying everything's fine until it isn't. And then if you don't have an option, you're not fine. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, for example, and I know it's kind of like a controversial topic in a way, but something like guns is you don't need a gun until you really need a gun. Do you know what I mean? Like 99. I mean, I, I live in Texas, so yes, you need a gun. Right. Yeah, right, right, right. But up people like in New York, California uh, will argue that you probably don't need guns because the police are going to protect you, blah, blah, blah. But say, for example, somebody, you don't need a gun. You're never going to use the gun 99.99% of the time. But somebody breaks into your house and is trying to hurt your family. Yeah. You don't need the police. You need a gun. You know what I mean? So it's very much um, a similar sort of concept where, for example, like 99.9% .9 of the time, like say, for example, today, Governments are probably not going to go and kick down your door for using Bitcoin. But when they decide they do, what are you going to do? And that seems like an inevitable, in my opinion, an inevitable uh, action that they're going to take, especially as their power structure, especially as Bitcoin starts to attack and threaten their power structure. Yeah. And I think, you know, Obi's pointing out here in the US, we do have, you know, a balance of power, uh, but we've even seen historically, right? They confiscated gold. Uh, so what's to stop them from Correct. confiscating the next thing? Um, Correct, correct. And that, that's the thing too, is like they're already taking all the steps that are in place um, to start going down these pathways, right? Like, for example, um, every every country in history who started to debase their money has eventually, you know, uh, collapsed. The, the empire, the society has collapsed. So, and as they've done that, every time they've become increasingly irrational and started to uh, frame narratives, obviously lies around people who are threatening that power structure um, and obviously start to attack them based on that. So again, there's, I can't predict the future. Nobody can, but we can look at the, the history. We can look at the past in order to sort of 
uh, predict the future. Because as I say, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? Is there a psychological component as kind of you and I as humans going through the world, spending perhaps a lot more time than regular folks thinking about these sort of doomsday scenarios? Uh, like, would do you think it would be preferable to just go about life without worrying about it? And then you've got a 95% chance of never even having to worry about it. Um, short answer is yes. I think that is very preferable. You know, <laughs> ignorance is bliss, right? Um, I actually think all the time, like, I, I wish I could just, I wish I could just, you know, get up, go to work, do a nine to five to pay my fucking 50% taxes, be happy with paying 50% of my money in taxes, be happy with paying a million dollars for a house, um, and be happy with the 30 year, uh, mortgage slavery. I wish that that would be much more preferable than actually understanding the problem, uh, understanding history. But again, there's a few sort of sayings like, um, you may not be interested in it, but it's interested in you, right? And obviously, as I said before, like history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Oh, and there's another one is like uh, predictable events play out in unpredictable ways. So when we look at like what's likely to happen, sure, you can, the old saying again, more sayings, you can bury your head in the sand, but you're still going to get eaten, right? So it's very much the case. Yeah, no, I think um, that's an approach. I know, you know, for my life, uh, 2020 with the lockdowns, suddenly my eyes were open and I can't close them again. It's just, I can't. And I, 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 I wish I could. Um, a lot of people are very similar situation too. So it's actually, I think, a good thing because at the end of the day, like we said, you know, the Fiat Ponzi, it's, it's not potentially 95% chance of not affecting you. Like it is affecting you every single day. Um, they're stealing your wealth every single day. Your freedoms are becoming less and less and less every day. So anyone can do whatever they want. And I wish I could switch off from it, but at the same time, like it still affects you whether you choose to switch on from it or sorry, switch off from it or not. So, yeah. And so as we're, we're kind of coming back to, to Monero and, and Bitcoin, um, I don't know how much you know about uh, Fediment and Cashew. Um, I, I'll admit I don't have a good understanding. I've just got a very high level understanding. But if you do have thoughts, uh, you know, would love to hear that as well as as perhaps an alternative to, you know, some of the, the paths that Monero would satisfy. Yeah, sure. So I don't know. This is actually the first time I've ever heard of Cashew, but Fedimins, for example, I know is a completely centralized network. So the way Fedimins works is um, it's essentially federated Chormian eCash, if you're familiar with an old sort of eCash system. Yeah, that um, was my first exposure to, to crypto. There you go. There you go. So the way that works is if you want to do uh, Fedimins, it's essentially me and you will set up a federation, right? And we'll essentially have this essentially equivalent to a ledger where we just have money sent to each other. And it's essentially anonymous because we're not actually transferring money to each other. We'll just settle the balance at the end. Um, and then you have like the federation of it, which is just generally one person who controls what the truth is, if you know what I mean, or say a group of people. But in this, in this case, um, it really only works on small levels. So you actually have to trust the people involved. Um, so you can't have privacy with strangers in that case. And also it's complete, I would say it's completely centralized, which kind of defeats the purpose of having it on like a decentralized technology in the first place. Right. Um, but I don't know anything about cashew, but say for example, Fedimins is, doesn't seem like a better solution than Monero for me, because again, I can send someone money privately, um, and completely trustless where I can send, I'm not even saying it's like, it, you know, Chormi and eCash, it's like cash IOU, right? Um, yeah. And that's what it is, is like you're just IOUing somebody. 
sort of privately, but the Federation knows about it, who you have to trust and who you have to know personally. So it has severe limitations to it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, now, I'm, I'm curious, you know, so I've got your, your book here. For folks who are following along, there is a link. Uh, there we go, the Monero Standard. There is a link uh, down in the description to, to go and, um, you know, if you'd like to purchase the book, there's a lot of great stuff in here. But I'm curious what inspired you to write the book. You know, we have the Bitcoin yeah. Standard. We have YouTube channels that talk about Monero. Uh, why a book? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, as I said, it was kind of those two light bulb moments for me that sort of really, maybe the second light bulb moment more uh, was what really uh, drove me to write the book. Um, I actually think um, the book is not so much about Monero. Um, I think the book is actually more about those uh, two concepts that fix the problems we spoke about, which is proof of work fixes a fiat Ponzi and privacy fixes that sort of either the fight back and the progressing socialist, uh, global socialist movement, right? So proof of work and privacy is really what Monero actually is. Um, you can argue Zcash, but anyway, won't get into nuance on that. Um, <laughs> no. Sorry, sorry. Carry on. No, so what inspired me to write the book was really uh, nothing, nothing, you know, besides that sort of, if you want to call it an epiphany or a light bulb moment or whatever, that was kind of the main driver. I was actually in hospital at the time. Um, so I had my third knee reconstruction. And so for anyone who's had a knee reconstruction knows they give you some real good fucking painkillers um, <laughs> when when you have a knee reco because it's obviously very painful. So I was, uh, what do they call it? Like endone or whatever it is. I don't know what you call it in America. Potentially like oxycodone or something like that. Um, and I was feeling absolutely fantastic. And I was like, I sort of just had this, uh, I was just like, okay, I'm going to start a book. And obviously, um, you know, as you know, you get out of hospital and obviously whatever. Um, I just obviously kept writing the book. I still thought it was a fantastic idea. And um, I still to this day think it's a, a decent idea. <laughs> so what kind of reception have you received from the various different communities? Very, uh, so from different communities, um, well, to be honest with you, I haven't, uh, nobody like specifically submits a form and says, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin or I'm a Zcash guy and I like this, for example. But the general feedback I've received is like very similar to, as we are saying up there before, as you said, it was a very good book. And that's kind of like very cliche for somebody to say, like, for example, if you have like a chef and you eat their food, you're probably going to say it's good, even if it's shit, right? Um, but that's, when, I, before I wrote the book, you know, as you said, it's very easy to write, uh, sorry, very easy to read, uh, makes a lot of sense, etc. When I was kind of writing the book, those, what I ended up having in the book was very much what I wanted to start, sorry, what I wanted when I started. So I was always saying before I released the book, because obviously the, the pre-sale, uh, the pre-sale or the lead up to the release of the book went on far longer than anyone wanted and far longer than even I wanted because I mean I got a full-time job you know what I mean um I've never published a book before getting all this sh shit sorted takes ages so I was saying on the in the lead up to it um that this is either going to be a good book or I'm completely delusional right or it, it could be both but it was definitely one or one of them or both right um so I was so when I was writing it, I was like, yeah, this is a good book. This is a good book. It's going to be a good book. 
Um, and then I would have like a, a you know, that old, <laughs> like on a video game, press X to doubt, you know, I was like pressing X a lot, <laughs> doubting myself. Um, and then like I would proofread it and I'd be like, no, this actually is a good book, you know. Uh, like I say, either good book or I'm delusional, one of the two. And so I was very confident it was going to be a good book. And a lot of the feedback, in fact, 100% of the feedback I have is very similar to what you're saying to me um, off air before, that it's very readable, which was the goal, that it was very informative, which was the goal. Um, so it very much fits what I was aiming to uh, deliver on, which is really the ultimate goal for myself. Yeah, I think one thing that I really appreciate about the, the book was that it didn't get stuck in, um, you know, high economic concepts and Austrian versus Keynesian and, and some of the yeah. other places that a lot of the books I've read on, on Bitcoin tend to spend a ton of time there. And you went very quickly into the practical realities of, of the world and, you know, talking about the global power structure and and then gave, gave us tools for, you know, how we can uh, start to walk through this world. Uh, knowing all these things that we now know now. So I thought the, the actionability at the end of the book was was really good and with Monero as the solution. Um, so yeah, that's one thing I appreciate it for. It would be the book that I would recommend for someone who's looking for, uh, you know, fix the money, fix the world. Uh, this would be the book. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, so, you know, one one thing I know, you know, as, as I was getting near the, the end of the book, it, it very much felt like you were having some good conversation about uh, Bitcoin versus Monero and the differences between the two and and the, the pros and cons of each of them. And we've even got, you know, a couple of questions here from Obi about that as well. But but I am kind of curious, you know, there, there are places where I, I think Monero doesn't have quite the same level of robustness that uh, Bitcoin has. The, the hash rate is one, you know, it's orders of magnitude higher on um, Bitcoin, you know, the fact that Monero has RandomX, which allows anyone with a CPU to effectively mine it, means that anyone with a lot of money can rent miners and, and attack it. And I'm curious how you think about that particular threat. Uh, let me just run. Uh, I just want to cover two points, not forget them. Um, so I firstly think when you're looking at the hash rate, firstly, it's apples and oranges, right? Because if you're comparing SHA-256 with SHA-256, that makes sense. But if you're comparing SHA-256 with RandomX, then you're literally comparing apples and oranges and saying, uh, look, I have more apples than you have oranges. But it's like, okay, but I don't want apples. You know, we're not collecting apples. We have oranges over here. Um, and that's very much the case. So I've run both on my computer. So on RandomX, I have like a, a good computer. Um, not the best computer in the world, but certainly probably at the 75th percentile, like it's pretty good performing. Um, and that runs around about a thousand uh, random X hashes per second. Whereas I did um, a uh, SHA-256, I started mining Bitcoin for, and that was, if I remember correctly, it was a couple of years ago now, but that was around 10,000 hashes per second. So it was the order of magnitude higher, right? So it's exponentially easier to create more hashes than it was on Monero. So again, apples and oranges. Um, yeah, but as you mentioned before, you know, like random X is literally designed so that ASIC miners um, can't actually mine it. It essentially decentralizes the mine, the ability to mine to the everyday person, unlike these ASIC factories that you see pretty much all over the world, right? Uh, obviously in Texas where you are. So you have, I think those are two very important concepts to distinguish against each other. So decentralization being one and censorship resistance being the other one. So decentralization and censorship resistance are very similar in a sense, but they're also different. So I would say Bitcoin is probably more censorship resistant, but I would say Monero is probably more decentralized because the mining power is much more distributed. 
Whereas even the cost to attack the network on Bitcoin would be higher than it is on Monero, for example. So in that sense, it's more censorship resistant. But I tend to think, um, just a final point, is these things, whether it's price, whether it's hash rates, these things are generally what I consider variables. So they can go up and they can go down. Things that can't go up and down are things like proof of work. Uh, you can't have more proof of work or less proof of work. You either have proof of work or you don't. And things like privacy, we, I suppose you can theoretically have more privacy and less privacy, but it is pretty binary where you either have privacy or you don't. So tell me about proof of stake, because, uh, you know, a lot of crypto Ethereum just moved to proof of stake. Most yeah. of the, the communities that I'm in are based on some sort of proof of stake chain. Uh, why can't proof of stake be money as well? Uh, well, it's very simple. Um, so on a very high level, proof of stake is just a replication of what we have in society today which is the more money you have, the more influence you have. So as a mining mechanism, I, I really don't have too many arguments against um, against proof of stake because it's generally, you have a lot of similar philosophies to proof of work where the more money you commit, the more hash power you get. Same with Bitcoin miners, for example, obviously more money, more hash power. Um, so proof of stake, the more money, the more probability you have of solving the block. Same with Bitcoin. So the actual problem I have with proof of stake goes on to like the governance level where the more money you have, the more influence you have. And especially it goes to when they pre-mine these tokens for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So I forget exactly what it was, but I voted on MakerDAO once. And then you look at like the, you, you got your fuck all MakerDAO. <laughs> and then you like look at the, like the pre-mine for it. Actually, I don't know if MakerDAO, I don't think MakerDAO had a pre-mine, whatever the case was, whatever I was voting on. But you look at it, they've essentially pre-mined more than 50% of the tokens for themselves, right? So there's in no way could you even call that decentralized. So to have a proof of stake system where the more money you have, the more influence you have, to then call that, I have no problem with that, but let's call it what it is. That's that's what a centralized company does, where the more shares you have, the more influence you have. So it's completely centralized. So to call it decentralized is quite literally, in my opinion, fraudulent behavior. Mm -hmm. And Obi's pointing out that proof of stake is bringing us back to the same problem that we tried to get away from with this Cantillon effect and that's right. the, the Fiat Ponzi. Um, that's right. And when you see like, um, if you actually look, because what will happen on these proof stake decentralized protocols is exactly what we're seeing in publicly listed companies now, which is you get these funds, say for example, like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, um, all these massive funds who are quite literally just managing, it's not their money, they're managing other people's money. However, they get all the voting rights for those public companies. So when you look at the biggest shareholders in the companies around the world, they are like generally those three companies. Um, even, even larger because obviously like Vanguard and you know, all these things have different funds. So they might be like a high yield fund and there might be like a 401k fund and they could just be one and two, which is the same company at the end of the day, right? Um, so what i think will happen is exactly what we see there where that money gets pulled into these centralized companies um, who then will go out and buy say ethereum for a price exposure but then because they actually own collectively or singly more than 50 percent or a large amount of the of the stake of the actual coins they get to a point where they can control either by themselves or collectively the protocols which is again not the point that's what centralized companies do right because centralization is great for organization but when you have like a monetary system that's supposed to be decentralized 
having that amount of power within one, two, three, ten people is um, very antithetical to the idea of it. So I think long term, it doesn't actually have the legs to go out and provide freedom to people. I think that's fair. Um, the the other thing that I hear back from folks whenever I talk about Monero is, yeah, but what about Zcash or Dero or you know, insert your favorite privacy coin here. And I'm mm -hmm. curious about your thought on Monero compared to some of the other you know privacy coins that are out there. Hey, look, you know what I actually wrote in the book, as I said before, was the two main concepts that are important to providing freedom to people is proof of work and privacy. So. I think anything that is proof of work and privacy, which is ultimate, ultimately like freedom, uh, respecting, freedom enabling, freedom preserving, um, those are all good things. There are a couple nuanced sort of takes. Um, maybe for example, like if you look at the privacy technology on Zcash, and I'll preface this with I'm not a cryptographer and people are going to go crazy saying oh, Monero uses zero knowledge proofs. I get it, I get it, all right, I get it, firstly. Um, but like the zero knowledge proofs that they use on Zcash, uh, again, without being a cryptographer, I know are more perfect. Like they, uh, what, what's it called? They leak, they're less leaky. They leak less data than they do on Monero. So Monero uses ring signatures where it's, was it 16 in a ring um, as you and 15 other people. So technically you're actually getting exposed. It's just the probability of knowing who it is, is everybody's probabilistically exactly the same, right? Whereas the, the zero knowledge proofs that Zcash uses is, I believe they actually reveal that you're able to uh, spend the money, you have the authority to spend the money without actually revealing who you are. Mm. So I think in that regards, um, but again, there's this, so in that regard, Zcash is better. But again, I've heard uh, very good arguments as to why um, Monero doesn't adopt that just yet. And probably the best one I've heard to date is from Justin Ehrenhofer, who was saying that basically they're just going to wait to get caught up on in order to change it because we were talking off air before uh, about chess, right? So when a great principle in chess is obviously to get the king and to get the king, the, an old saying is it's great to know where the king lives, right? So when they castle, when they get put in the corner, you know where the king lives. So if you then have Monero and then you move to a... Uh, different zero knowledge proof you know where the king lives then so it's obviously you can start your attack then mm -hmm. but if you wait in chess you wait for sort of the last minute to castle you're essentially committing all your opponent's resources to one area and then you change the address and then they have to essentially every every all the resources they put into plan at that stage or they put into action at that stage are completely worthless and they have to formulate a whole new plan right so that's the best sort of argument i've heard in regards to um why Monero hasn't moved away from ring signatures yet is because they're kind of just waiting for them to catch up. But then they go, oh, sorry, we'll, we'll just move somewhere else. And everything you've done is completely worthless, which actually has security within itself, right? Because it almost has that incentive for them to never do it in the first place because they know you, as soon as they get close, you're just going to move anyway. So um, I think that's actually a very good philosophy that kind of, again, goes back to we had all these sayings that if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. So Yeah, it's just almost like forcing the work on the, the people who had attacked the, the network and forcing the maximum amount of work over the largest amount of time before Correct. you decide to move to something else so that, it, in a sense, blunts your attacker's resources. Very much so, very much so. And like I said, it makes it pointless to even start with in the first place because they're not going to get anywhere by committing that energy to it, right? Um, but in regards to, like, Darrow, for example... Um, by the way, I just want to say that Darrow in Australia is like a, 
what do you call them? Like Adero is kind of like a loser, like a like <laughs> a, ju a junkie or something like that, right? So when I saw like this, uh, like Adero would be somebody like living on the streets, uh, begging for money, you know, for drugs or whatever. Um, I mean, that's pretty accurate with some of the conversations that I've had. <laughs> <laughs> Please use Darrow. Sorry, I, no offense, mean to the Darrow folks. I know there's some yeah, no, 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 behind there, and they've got smart contracts and some cool stuff. So, no. And that's what I think too. Is I, I haven't done like a full deep dive, and I've done like a very sort of brief overlook of it. Some sort of potentially interesting tech, but again, they're like I kind of separate uh, crypto blockchain into two sort of categories. As does Jamie Diamond. We just have two categories. So you have like your money and then you have like a smart contracts, right? So Darrow is doing smart contracts. Monero is doing money. Uh, Zcash is doing money too. So I don't really necessarily see Monero and Darrow fixing the same problems. I think that's a good way of, of thinking about it and breaking it apart. Um, now we, we've covered, you know, a lot from, you know, what is money to why privacy is important, comparisons between Monero and Bitcoin and where each uh, shine. Uh, what else do you think are important is important for people to know is is they're kind of going out in the world and, and trying to figure out what do they do with all this information? I don't know. Do you have any answers? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. What do you think? I mean, it's 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 tricky because in Bitcoin the answer is easy, right? It's you know buy Bitcoin. Just yeah, it's cliche, Monero. right? Yeah. That's what I would have said, but it's too cliche. Um, but but I mean, is the answer by Monero? I don't even think that that helps necessarily. Um, well, is the answer by Monero? I mean, yes, in the sense that if you want to have more freedom, um, then it's great. If you want to use Monero as an investment vehicle, I would say there's a lot better investment vehicles out there. Um, I would say the point of uh, all cryptos is to provide freedom to people, not for a number god technology, which is where I think the sort of Bitcoin maximalist community has kind of lost itself. Um, so I think importantly, you know, as we begin to see the world becoming, you know, more authoritarian, more dystopian, the important thing to remember is that Monero is always, well, hopefully, it's always going to be there. It's always going to provide freedom to those who use it. So if today you decide that you uh, need more freedom for X, Y, Z reason, whether you live in Venezuela or whether you live in, you know, the, the freest country in the world, um, then use Monero, great. Um, if you decide that you don't need more, then that's also great too, because that means you're probably living a good life. So you don't necessarily need Monero. Monero is just a tool, like I think Bitcoin's a tool. Um, like I think everything is a tool in order to achieve a bigger goal, which for me is freedom and prosperity, right? So I think that's just the most important thing to keep in mind with the information. I think that's good. I think Matthew has a nice catchy phrase, uh, save, you know, save Bitcoin, spend Monero, buy Bitcoin, um, spend Monero. Because um, I think, as you were saying, it's, it's that ecosystem that you're going to create by spending Monero that gets to be an important part of the viability of, of Monero and, and how it can actually advance that freedom. For sure. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard um, obviously that saying before. Um, there's such a nuanced point, like I've probably gone for an hour about that point within itself. But in summary, um, if you're looking to save is a very like kind of um, arbitrary, interpretable word, if you will. Like, because saving for some people could just be keeping the current purchasing power they have. Saving for other people, which a lot of Bitcoiners is saving, is actually creating more 
uh, purchasing power, which is not actually kind of what saving is. Yeah, it's more investing uh, than saving. It's more investing, correct, yeah. Um, so I would say like for investing, then it's probably better. But as we said, like the first question um, was the value of everything, um, I suppose is actually derived from how much, not only how much, how hard it is to create more of it, but also it's derived from uh, how much demand there is for it based on the problem that it solves, right? So a secondary point said about comparing apples and oranges is when you look at Bitcoin and Monero, Bitcoin's available on quite literally every single exchange in the world, except obviously DEXs or whatever on ETH and all that kind of stuff. Uh, even then wrapped Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff. Um, but Monero is available on very few exchanges. So if you like comparing the price based on again, apples and oranges, one that's listed and has all the liquidity available in the world and one that has in Australia, fuck all liquidity in the world, um, then you're probably not gonna get an accurate answer. But one of the signals is if they're going to, again, allow Bitcoin, not only allow, but encourage in a lot of ways in terms of ETFs, and they're quite literally not allowing Monero and banning Monero and putting all these regulations that make it impossible for exchanges to get bank accounts and all that kind of stuff then you kind of have to look past that that so the price is signal within itself because price tells us what the market is adopting only when you're comparing apples with apples though mm. so when you have something like monero that's not available on exchanges do, do you know what i mean like you have less, less yeah maybe let, let me express it in a, in a sure. different way is that um a large portion of the value in bitcoin is speculation and its price reflects that true. value. Um, most of Monero's value comes from the utility of spending it, and its price reflects that value as as well, uh, because it doesn't have, as you say, that liquidity to make it an investable vehicle. Very much so. And just to expand on that a little bit more, over the long term, as I said, the value is derived from the demand based on the problem that solves. When we speak about like the problems that we uh, that we spoke about already, so the Fiat Ponzi and the sort of global socialist movement. I can only foresee Monero becoming an increasingly important part in society. And obviously, as a result of that, the demand for it's gonna go up. And as a result of that, the dollar price will go up for that. Um, and they're doing everything they can to sort of make Monero not known, to make all these people come into crypto, not even pay attention to Monero, even in the slightest. Um, and yeah, so. Yeah, there was a part of your book that, that really resonated with me, which is the get out the message part of it. You know, you said uh, start YouTube channels, uh, write books, write tweets, write yep. blog posts. Um, I think that's a, an underappreciated part of crypto. Like we're all, I think we're all a little bit nerdish here because there's a lot of technology involved. We have to understand complex things. Um, but breaking it down, making it simple, bringing people on board is, I'd say, even more valuable right now that most of the technology is closer to being solved. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, that is a massive important part. And I get it, you know, not everyone can fucking write a book and, but everyone can do something, right? Like you can even just have a post every day, hashtag Monero, you know, and if everybody does that, all of a sudden that's going to be trending every single day, which is obviously going to open up the audience to significantly more people than it currently is. And so everybody can do something. It all comes down to the values of, if you think freedom and prosperity is a good thing, then that's what you should do. You should work towards that. And, and I think, you know, very much it's not about, Share Monero so the price can go up. It's share Monero so more people can 
participate in that freedom and prosperity and to have the tools to encourage them. Right. Because as we said at the start, you know, it's um, I'm completely disinterested in everything to do with speculation in crypto. Um, and I think it actually misses the whole point of crypto in general. So I think you hit it on the head. Uh, want to say hi to South Padre Tony who popped in as well. Uh, always a good, uh, you know, person in the yeah. Monero community here as well. Um, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you if they're going to go looking for you? Yeah, so um, basically I do most of my uh, communication with the world on Twitter. So at the Stoic Coiner on Twitter or Stoic.xmr is my username. Um, or if you want to grab yourself a copy of the book, you can also go to uh, monerostandard.com. You can pay in Monero and other cryptos. But if you want to pay in dirty fiat, if you're in America, <laughs> you can go to Barnes & Noble. If you're in Australia, Booktopia. If you're in England, you can go amazon.co.uk. Um, there's a bunch of different places you can grab it in, in fiat and crypto. Awesome. And I, I highly encourage if you if you haven't purchased anything in Monero before, uh, go through the process of purchasing, purchasing it. It's remarkably easy. Download Cake Wallet or one of those wallets. Um, if you're in the US, you can get Monero from Kraken. Yes, it has KYC, but as soon as it leaves the KYC into the Wild West, uh, you've got your privacy back. Perfect. And yeah, just on that note too, is there are a lot of places you can still get non-KYC Monero, which is an advantage of them cracking down on KYC exchanges so much um, for crypto to crypto. So you'd have to buy Bitcoin or I recommend something like with cheap fees like a Matic or a Doge, uh, then transfer it to another exchange, trade it to Monero, non-KYC, you're away and free. Yeah, there's a lot of those where even some of them might be slightly centralized. I think uh, SimpleSwap and Stealth EX are you yeah. know, a little bit more centralized in the swaps, but they do not require KYC to do that swap. Uh, we have a question about atomic swaps. If you've got a, a couple more minutes maybe to, to help answer. Um, do you know if atomic swaps happen both ways? And what are some of the best places to execute the atomic swaps? Yes, that's a good question. I haven't, um, as far as I know, um, I'm a bit rusty at the moment because I, I kind of half remember hearing that like something was ready. I've certainly never used it. I'm not 100% sure if they're even ready, but I know they're, I know 100% certainty they're being worked on. There's probably people going in the in the comments right now saying, screaming at me, you know, saying it's ready, it's here, <laughs> whatever. Um, but I haven't used it. Um, but I do think atomic swaps is a massively important part in freedom for Monero long-term, but also freedom for people long-term, because that means they can do it in a decentralized way, go from Bitcoin to Monero, for example. Uh, Matthew's saying that Samurai swaps are live. There so, you go. Uh, there we go. There you go. Out of the presses. Um, and yep. Obi, that would be your non-KYC route, um, decentralized non-KYC route. Yep. There's also another um, a group of Monero guys have a website called, I would pronounce it Trocador. Other people pronounce it Trocador. Um, T-R-O-C-A-D-O-R. So I think it's Trocador.io or Trocador.app. So that's just an aggregator of exchanges. So the ones you mentioned before, like StealthyX. If you go on, um, I don't know if you're on there, but if, for example, if you wanted to share your screen, uh, you basically just put in a, a crypto. So it could be Monero, it could be another crypto to another crypto. So again, it could be Monero, it could be another crypto. So it could be Monero to Bitcoin, Bitcoin to Monero, Matic to uh, Bitcoin, it could be Monero to Matic, like whatever, right? There's heaps of cryptos. And so you just put in the amount you want to send, so if you just type like an arbitrary value, say like one, uh, then click uh, exchange from an error exchange. And then it comes up with uh, all the different options. Um, 
So if you scroll down there, so it has like all the different options, has like the rate, the spread, um, the KYC requirements. So privacy on the right there has the um, KYC requirements of which there are almost none. If you click like the information above the privacy, the next to the privacy, it's like shows you there, for example. Um, so that's personally what I've been using. I think it's a fantastic app. Um, I forget the name of the guys who own it, operate it, but I know they are Monero guys and they're good guys. Uh, it's the guys who own MoneroJ.net, which is like the, kind of the on-chain analytics for Monero. Um, so that's another option that I'd recommend to people too. Okay, that, that's also, awesome. I haven't heard of some of these. I've heard of Change Now and SimpleSwap and Stealthy X, but not some of the other ones. It's, it's cool to have like a price comparison. Yeah. Yep. And it's super easy. Um, so I guess you've got lots of ways to get Monero. Um, you can get crypto KYC and swap to Monero. You can get Monero from some exchanges. You can go to localmonero.co, I believe. Um, and yep. you can do a peer-to-peer -peer swap as well. Yep. There's always, if there's a will, there's always a way, right? <laughs> yeah, these tend to be, actually these deals don't seem so bad right now, but these, these have always tended to be a little bit more expensive. I guess you're paying a bit extra for that privacy. Mm -hmm. Always a good option too. Cool. Anything you'd like to close with before we uh, before we close? Ah, uh, no, not 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 particularly to be honest. Um, I think we've done pretty well in covering most of the things. Awesome. So uh, thank you again for for taking the time for everyone who popped into chat for all your questions for your new comments. I really appreciate you. Uh, this is what what gives me uh, energy and excitement to continue doing this channel. Um, so if you would like to help us defeat the algorithm gods, uh, please do like and subscribe to the channel. That that very much supports us. I want to give another plug now. Uh, go get the book. Whoops, there we go. Um, it is very, very good, um, especially as an introduction to a lot of the concepts that we've talked about today. Uh, most folks don't have this kind of stuff in their brain. Um, I think Michael's done a great job of laying it out uh, very simply for everyone. Thanks so much. It really means a lot. Uh, if you enjoyed it, that, that really means a lot. So I appreciate it. Awesome. And I will see you all again later. Thanks.